Thank you, Anastasia. Uh, if you haven't been to the Frenzy before, it's going to be very exciting. Probably one of the best nights of your life, but you'll have to go thus far. Thus far. There will probably be better nights. But thus far. So if you are new here, we're going to have a phone number up on the screen, and you can text any questions you might have during the message to that phone number, and I will try to answer any at the end of the message. But very excited to see all of you guys here. This semester, as Jesse mentioned last week, we are going through a series called Signs, which is going to walk through the first half of the Gospel of John. Now, if you read through the Gospel, there are three words in the original Greek that are used to describe miraculous events. And so in the rest of the Gospels, and Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the word that they use translates as miracles or miraculous events. But the word that John uses translates as signs. He is very preoccupied with this word signs, and he uses it 16 times in the first 12 chapters. And so literally the first half of the book of John is about these signs that Jesus is performing. And what John is saying here is that these miracles are not that we will see, they're not just miracles for those persons, for those people that they were done to, but they are miracles that reveal more about who Jesus is and what it is he came to do. So I always say, Jesse and I joke, that John is like the English major's gospel. He is very focused on symbolism and all of those things. So he would say, there's a miracle, for example, where Jesus feeds the 5,000 loaves and fishes. Do you guys remember that one? John would say, it's not just about the bread. It's not just about the fact that all of those people were fed. It was about Jesus being the bread of life. And then he would go on a discourse about that. So what we see is that these signs, these miracles, are about something greater. And they reveal who Jesus is, and maybe more importantly, what it is that he came to do. And then at the very end of the Gospel of John, he tells you why he told you all of these stories. He says, I write about these miraculous signs so that you may believe that Jesus is the Son of God, and in believing, you will have life. So what he's saying is if you recognize Jesus' glory in these signs, that Jesus will give you life, and that will change everything. So let's pray before we get into the message, and then I'll start out. Gracious God, we pause in your presence, we open our hearts to your spirit and to your word today, and we say that when you speak, may all other voices be silent. Tune our hearts, Lord, to what you have to say to us today. In your name we pray, amen. So I'll start with a little story. How many of you guys come from small towns? Show of hands. I come from a pretty small town in South Texas, and as a matter of fact, my very first time in D.C., and only my second time on the East Coast, was my very first day of school here. Freshman, I had never visited Georgetown, never visited D.C., until my first day here. So I was very glad that that worked out. Um, but I was so in awe. I was in awe of my peers. I was in awe of just the people who live in D.C., and I was eating in Leo's one day with a group of my friends, and I saw my first celebrity sighting in Leo's, of all places. I saw this man gathered around his friends, and they were talking. 
I was like, oh my goodness, that is the guy who does the Joe Biden impersonations on Saturday Night Live. My first celebrity encounter. I was so excited, I walked right up to that guy, and I said, excuse me, I hate to be this person, but I love your Joe Biden impersonations on Saturday Night Live, and just wanted to say hello. And the man looks at me, and he's like, oh, I'm actually Joe Biden, <laughs> Vice President of the United States. And then I realized that he wasn't with friends. That was his uh, Secret Service detail. <laughs> and I was an international politics major in the SFS at this time. Um, so under, what is Joe Biden doing in Leo's? First off, never got an answer to that question. Very, very embarrassing way. This was my second week of Georgetown. My friends just laughed at me. And why do I tell you this story? Because sometimes we can see things. We can really see them. We have all the context clues that we need. But we completely miss the mark. We completely miss what's actually happening and just see something completely different, right? And if I'm honest, this story, this sign that we're going to talk about tonight is one that I read for years and completely missed the meaning of it. It completely missed what was actually happening. But then I started to study this passage. At first it seemed very strange to me. But as I was starting to study it, I noticed that John introduces this as the first sign of Jesus. And he uses this word in the Greek for first that implies that this is the archetype miracle. In essence, this is vintage Jesus happening. And everything else, all of the other signs that he performs, are, are a symbol of this miracle. And then when I, was, when I studied it, it ultimately went from a very strange passage to a very profound one. So if you have your Bibles, you can open them to John chapter 2. If you don't, we will have uh, the scripture up on the screen there. And if you don't have a Bible, side note, we would love to give you one. So just talk to Jesse and I after, and we would love to give it to you. But we're going to look at Jesus' first sign. This is the, the archetype sign that he performs. In verse 1 it says, On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there. And, it, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. And when the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. So before we get to the rest of the story, here is what's going on here. Jesus and his disciples are at this wedding in Cana. And there are a few things that we have to understand about a wedding banquet in that day. So I've been to a few weddings, and I normally get there around three or four, and I'm normally back home in time to watch Law & Order SVU before I go to bed. It's a relatively short affair. Not so in this culture. Back then, a wedding banquet was an incredibly big deal. It would normally last about seven days. People would travel from all over, they would take a week off of work, and they would stay there and party the entire seven days. This was an epic, epic celebration. And in that day, you would invite as many people as your family could afford, to, could afford to invite. And so often, the whole village was there, and also often, people from surrounding villages would travel in for the occasion. This was your family's moment in the sun, and your whole family's reputation 
was on the line. If it went well, it would bring great honor to your family's name. And another difference from our modern wedding is it was solely the groom and his family's responsibility for providing uh, provisions for the wedding banquet. And in Jewish culture, you did not want to ever come close to running out of food or wine. And here's why. Because if people traveled from far distances, and if they took a whole week off of work to be there for this celebration, and you did not have adequate provisions for them, some commentators say that you would be considered a thief for inviting more people than you could adequately provide for. In fact, if you did run out of food or wine, your in-laws could bring a lawsuit against you, which is a terrible way to start building relationships with your in-laws because you have shamed their family name. Now this is a very shame-based culture. So the social stigma for running out of wine at your wedding would have stayed with this man for years. He would have been a talk, the talk of the village for years and always been known as that guy who ran out of wine at his wedding. He would always hold that shame. So when Jesus' mother is coming to him and saying they have ran out of wine, there is a lot at stake here. His whole future reputation and the quality of his life in some ways is on the line here. And that's something we have to understand before we go forward. So verse 4, it says, Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, My hour has not yet come. Now one, he calls his mom woman, which seems pretty weird. <laughs> However, woman in this, uh, in this context is not at all a derogatory term. It's not a harsh term. In fact, it was actually a very respectful and tender way for Jesus to refer to his mother. And we see him use this term again at the end of the gospel when he's on the cross and he's telling John to take care of his mother when he's gone. And also what this signified here is that their dynamics as mother and son are slowly beginning to shift as Jesus steps more into his divinity and is ultimately obedient to his heavenly father. So verse five says, his mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. And Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. So he tells his disciples to take six huge stone jars that held about 20 to 30 gallons of water and fill them to the brim. Now I have a picture up here for you of what these jars might have looked like. Now, a very interesting detail in the story that we have to know is these jars were not meant to hold wine. They were meant for the ceremonial washing. And what that meant is in that day, the Jewish people had to ceremonially cleanse themselves to remind themselves that they were sinners and they needed to be cleansed before, that they, could, before they could commune with God. And so Jesus tells them to find these jugs and to fill them to the brim with water. Now I have to wonder what on earth the disciples might have been thinking in this moment. First off, they were probably thinking, water? We are not out of water, Jesus. The water is going just fine. We are out of wine right now. 
your mom said we were out of wine, and then he tells them to go find these jars, and they're like, why would we fill these jars with water? This is what we use to cleanse ourselves. But we see that even though the disciples probably have no idea what Jesus is talking about, they're obedient and they do what he says, which is probably a good lesson for us, that sometimes we have no idea what Jesus is trying to do, um, but we should be obedient even when we don't understand. So they didn't go to the faucet, but they had to go to the well to draw the water to fill these to the brim. And then we see in verse 8, it says, Then he told them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, Everyone brings out choice wine first, and then cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best until now. So this is superb wine that Jesus has made. It's not just average wine. It is superb. And this is how the gospel writer John ends this story. He says, if I could tell you what happened here on this day, it's this. In verse 11, he says, What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first, the archetype of the signs through which he revealed his glory. And his disciples put their budding faith in him. So John is saying, do you want to know how the people responded to this miracle, this sign that they had seen? And he gives them one word, glory. They recognized Jesus' glory. So what I want to do tonight is spend a few minutes answering these two questions. The first is, why did they respond by saying glory? And the second question is, what does this tell us about who Jesus is? And what does this tell us about what it is that he came to do? Now for us to understand, to begin to understand the answers to these two questions, we need to see and understand how wine was used by the prophets of the Old Testament. So I have some slides up here for you, and this is just a sampling of how wine was used as a symbol in the Old Testament. We see Joel speaks of this day of the Lord, this day where things would be restored and salvation would come to God's people and things would be restored to the way that they were meant to be. And he says in, in chapter 3, verse 18, that in that day, the mountains will drip new wine and the hills will flow with milk. And then we see Amos speaks of the restoration of Israel when God's people will be redeemed and restored and when true justice will be brought once and for all. And he says that when that day comes, new wine will drip from the mountains and flow from all the hills. And then we have Isaiah 25, 6. And he's speaking of the day when all things would be made new and restored to how they were intended to be. And he says, On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best meats, and the finest of wines. And then goes on to say in verse 8, He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away tears from all faces. So this is what we get in the Old Testament. That wine is used as a symbol of salvation, it's a symbol of blessing, it's a symbol of restoration, of renewal, 
of peace and of things being returned to the way that they were meant to be. And Jesus is here. He's performing his first sign. He comes onto the scene and he turns water into wine. And what he is saying with this sign is this. He's saying the day of new wine is here. That I have come to restore, I have come to renew, I have come to redeem, I have come to, be, to bring peace. And in me, the prophetic hope of the prophets has been fulfilled in your presence. And here's what this means. From this point, from this sign forward, that when Jesus finds someone who is spiritually dead and brings them new life, restoring people into their heavenly relationship with the Father, new wine begins to flow. When Jesus comes to those who are bound in sin and addiction and idolatry, and he sets them free, new wine begins to flow. And when Jesus comes into broken relationships, and he brings reconciliation, and he destroys the dividing wall of hostility, new wine begins to flow. And when Jesus comes to the sick in body and brings healing, new wine begins to flow. And when Jesus comes to those who are insecure and don't know their value, he tells them that they are sons and daughters of God, and new wine begins to flow. So we see this wine as a symbol in the Old Testament of salvation, of blessing, of restoration, and renewal, redemption, and peace. And then Jesus' first sign, his first miracle, is turning water into wine. And John says that we beheld his glory. And we also see in this passage that Jesus tells his mother that his hour has not yet come. And we need to realize this, that every time Jesus speaks of his hour, he is referring to one thing. He is referring to the moment that he would go to the cross. That is what his hour refers to. We see in John 7.30, it says, No one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. And in John 8.20, it says, No one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. And then there is a shift in the entire Gospel of John, in chapter 12. And it says, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. So in this moment, in the very beginning, at this wedding banquet, when the groom's provisions were insufficient, Jesus comes onto the scene, and he refers to this hour that will come, where he will pay the price, and he will make provisions so that we could enter into a covenant relationship with him. So what he is saying is, when Jesus is hanging on the cross, what he is doing is he's turning water into wine. He's bringing redemption. He's bringing restoration. And he's bringing salvation to his people. And then Jesus says, take these ceremonial jars and fill them to the brim because we don't need them for anything else anymore. We need them to have new wine in them because the one who brings you true cleansing is here. He is here in your presence. He paid the price for our sin, and he brings us cleansing through the gift of the Holy Spirit. One thing I want us to know is Christianity is not about us trying to climb this ladder 
to get to God. But it's about a God who descended on this ladder to come to our, greatest, our place of greatest shame and bring redemption and restoration. And if I were to sum up this entire story in one statement, this is what I would say. That Jesus comes to this person, this groom's place of greatest shame, and he turns it into a place of celebration. And let me ask you a question. Do you think that the groom at this wedding could ever think about having run out of wine at his wedding without immediately thinking of what Jesus did next? No. Jesus came, and he completely saved this guy. He saved his skin. And I imagine that one day, you know, years later, this groom is probably sitting around the table with his friends telling them this story, saying, we were out. We were out of wine. It was only day three, and we were completely out of wine. And there's no way he could end the story there, because it's just getting good. And why do I say that? Because what Jesus does in the gospel is he comes to our place of greatest shame, our place of greatest sin, our place of greatest brokenness. And he wants to enter into that and turn that into celebration so we can't think about the shame. We can't think about that moment without then rejoicing in what Jesus did next, which is take that place of shame into a place of grace and a place of celebration. I don't know everybody in this room yet, but I know a lot of you guys. And I know that a lot of us in here, including myself, we carry some baggage. And all of us will go through seasons in our lives where the enemy has beat us down with our failure and with our shame, and where that's all that we can see. And we, when we were in that season, I want us to think of this passage and think of this man and think can this man ever revisit this place of greatest shame for him without rejoicing for what Jesus did and I think the answer to that question is no so I think for us don't let the enemy the enemy of your soul bring forth your sin and bring forth your shame without recognizing that Jesus has paid the price for that. That Jesus wants to completely transform us. He wants to give us freedom. And when he does that, he transforms this water into wine. That is what he does. And maybe you're here tonight, and there is stuff in your life that you have never told anybody. This stuff that haunts you, it makes you cringe, it's in the dark, that stuff that you think that you will take with you to the grave. I want you to know that Jesus wants to turn that into a place of redemption. He wants to bring you healing. And he wants to turn it into a place of celebration because that is what God does. That is what Jesus does here. He transforms this water into water. Now, I have a question for each of you guys here tonight. Have you ever come to God with your place of greatest shame, with your place of greatest sin, 
and asked him and let him turn it into a place of grace and a place of celebration. Jesus is in the business of turning water into wine. Let me give you one more observation, and then we'll go into questions. So this is obviously Jesus' sign that he's performed. He gets all the glory. This is something that he did. This is a miracle that he did. But I think an interesting observation here is that he uses his disciples to do it. He chose them to be conduits of this sign. He asked them to go and to fill up these ceremonial jars with water, and they were obedient. And as a result, they together turned this water into wine. And I have a proposition for us that maybe Jesus wants to use us to turn water into wine as well. And I think that that could look very simple. It could look as simple as dropping cookies off at somebody's door who's having a rough time. And through that act of kindness and generosity can restore hardened hearts and turn water into wine. It could be as simple as talking and listening to that person in your floor, to that person in your dorm, who everybody else is ignoring. And through that caring relationship, turning water into wine. And it could look like each of you leaving here and searching for someone younger than you who could really use a friend, could really use a mentor, and investing your life into them. And when we do that, we are a part of turning water into wine. And if you're here tonight, and you've never had a relationship with Jesus before. Tim Keller uses this passage, and he says it's actually a very great metaphor for how we enter into a relationship with Jesus. And he says that there's three steps. First, like the people at the party, we have to admit that we are empty and that we have nothing to offer. And then second, like his disciples, we must put our faith and our trust in Jesus. And then the third thing is that we get to take credit for what Jesus did. And I think that that is the interesting part of this story, is that the groom gets the credit. The groom gets all, he comes out looking real well here. He get, not only does he get new wine for the rest of his wedding, but it is superb wine. And he gets credit for bringing out the best at the end. And that's the gospel. That is what the gospel is, that we admit that we're empty, that we put our trust in Jesus, and by doing that, we get the credit for his righteousness and for his faithfulness to us. And in that, Christianity becomes not just about us pursuing God, but a God who came down to pursue us, a God who came to meet us in our place of great shame and transform that place by his mercy and grace. Now, before we go into a time of prayer, I want to see if we have uh, one or two questions. We do have questions. Excellent. The first question. I can't see God's signs in my life right now when everything else seems to be working out for everyone else. What does it take for God to make new wine in my own life? So I can't see Jesus' signs in my own life and things seem to be working out in everyone's life. What does it take for him to, to turn water into wine? 
Well, I think one of the things about the science that we're going to go through um, this semester is that we have an opportunity in each of these signs to really learn more about the character of Jesus and to really learn what he's about. And so I think, while it could be really easy to look for these signs in our lives, I think that Jesus gives us the Bible and we have the scripture that we can learn and study so that, that we can see and know the character of Jesus and know what he was doing then and then maybe apply that to what he could do for us. And I think, while I think God, he's changing water into wine in our lives every day. And sometimes we don't see it. And I think sometimes it's easy to think, how is he doing it in my life? But maybe what I would challenge you guys with is instead of thinking about that, think how does God want you to, want to use you to change water into wine in your friends' lives and in the people around you? And I think that sort of outward perspective um, can, can reveal a lot more about what God wants to do. And the last question. How can we best focus on rejoicing in God through trials that have beat us down? How can we best focus on rejoicing in God through trials. trials that have beat us down? Hmm. That is a great question. I think that when we enter trials in our life, our propensity as humans is to want to uh, escape them as quickly as possible. And I think that something that Jesus demonstrates to us is sometimes the only way through challenges is forward. And sometimes these hard things in our lives, these trials that we go through, are actually the things that really shape us. And so I think perhaps the greatest medicine, if you will, for these trials is to have an army, a little army of people that you go through them with. And so this is our, our weekly plug for small groups during the Q&A time. But I think that is what small groups do. Things can feel so isolating here at Georgetown if you think that you're going through things on your own. And even if you think that you're the only one here who is going through the same challenge. And I think one of the things you'll find if you really plug in to a group and really invest, because I think that's the key. It's not just simply attending, but really investing in a group of people. Then I think you find that one, you have an army of people who will walk through these challenges with you, who will share the burden with you, uh, who will encourage you when you don't think that you can keep yourself encouraged. And I think the second thing that we see is we have an opportunity uh, to take the focus off of us, too, and to look to how we can serve our brothers and sisters better. And so I think, I think here at Georgetown, the only way that we, we make it through this Christian life is by doing it in community and by doing it together. And fortunately, that's something that Jesus models even in this miracle that he could have done this all by himself, but he chooses to engage his disciples and let them be a part of the work that he's doing. And I think that we have an opportunity to do that as well. So I want to close in prayer. And I want to close in a challenge as we go into worship. I want to talk to 
to two different groups of people as we go into worship. The first is this. If you're here, for those of you who have that place of shame that no one knows about, that place of pain, I want to remind you as we go into this time of worship that you don't have to carry that anymore. And you don't have to carry that alone. And I pray that during this time of worship, that whether that's through your own private conversations with God or whether it's praying for praying with people um, who will be standing in the back who would love to pray with you, I want to encourage you to relinquish that shame to Jesus. Because Jesus wants to heal you and Jesus wants to make you whole. And then I think that there are a lot of people here tonight who Jesus desperately wants to use to help turn water into wine for the people around us. There are people in this room, there are people outside of this room who desperately need this hope and this new wine that Jesus promises. And I pray that just like Jesus' disciples, that we can see these signs and that our response would be glory at the things that Jesus did and the way he orchestrates it all together for our good. So if you'd like, we can stand up right now. If you'd like to stay sitting and praying during worship, that's fine too. Uh, but as we transition, let me just say a prayer for us. And then we will sing a few worship songs. And then Jesse will come back up to close. Gracious and loving God, I pray that during this time of worship, that we would be able to place our focus and our hope on you. I pray that all of those distractions in our head would be silenced. And I pray that tonight, God, that you would turn water into wine in our lives. That you would transform places of sin and shame into places of redemption and salvation. And I pray that you would plant the cross in the middle of the spots that cause us the most pain and the most shame. And in it, we would see your glory. We just lift all of these petitions to you, who is good, and you who loves us. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen.